0: what's up you're listening to the long game and i'm your host david lee kim co-founder of omniscient digital in this episode we chat with barrett king barrett is a senior manager of hubspot's global go-to-market strategy of their partner ecosystem during his time at hubspot he has grown their channel partner program as a sales rep a trainer and a manager before leading the partner ecosystem initiative to help hubspot scale up market He has over 10 years of experience in building partnerships and executing go-to-market strategies for SaaS companies, and is skilled in identifying and cultivating new business opportunities, driving revenue growth, and establishing successful sales channels. In this conversation, we talk about Barrett's journey from hospitality to tech and the random occurrences that led him to his current role at HubSpot. He shares how he recommends companies think about building a partner program and how most companies start with the wrong questions. This was an insightful conversation that left me feeling excited about the potential for building partnerships and grateful for the random amalgamation of experiences that set us up for success. Here's my conversation with Barrett King. Barrett, welcome to The Long Game. Thanks, man. I'm fired up to be here. We have a good chat. Yeah, thanks for making the time. So, you're currently, this is going to be a mouthful, senior manager of global go to market strategy for the partner ecosystem at HubSpot. Yep. And what I'm going to do here is I'm going to rewind us back to 2015 when we met at HubSpot. I don't recall if we were in the same hiring class, but we started around the same time. I was i was May 2015, I think. Yeah, I was June. Yeah, it was around the same time.
1: we I think you actually sat across from me. And back then my yeah. title was super easy. It was channel account manager. Now I'm in the running for longest title in the history of titles. <laughs> I try and like, I need like a junior or Esquire
0: on the end. We'll really nail it at that point. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, we did sit across from each other. Yeah. I remember like my, I was on like the growth team. We somehow mm-hmm. got put on the same floor as the sales team, which is an odd mix. But I remember listening to your calls and like, I listened to everyone's phone calls because everyone's on their phone. And I don't know what was happening on the other side of your calls, but I remember thinking, like, damn, that guy's a smooth talker. Like, that Barrett <laughs> guy, like, he's doing, some, he's probably doing really well at his job right now. <laughs> I did all <laughs> like, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. I bring that up because as I was researching you for this interview, I learned some new things about you. But I also learned that when you graduated college, you realized language and communication was your art. That yeah. seemed like a pretty huge realization for you. We'd love to hear more about that.
1: It was big. Yeah, I mean, I, so I went to, it's funny, I had this sort of like weird journey, right? So I went to, I left uh, I left high school as one does, when right? I graduated high school. And I remember my guidance counselor, I, I, someday I hope this guidance counselor hears me on some like podcast somewhere and goes, <laughs> oh God, I said that? Um, and they said to me, Barrett, you probably shouldn't go to college. I don't feel like you're going to apply yourself. You probably should just go get a job. And I remember being like, Shit, that's not nice to say to a kid who's like a little bit lost, perhaps, and trying to figure out what they want to do with their life. But I remember my parents just putting a ton of focus on, like, you go to college, it's what you do, right? And I, I graduated for time's sake for everyone in two thousand three. I graduated high school, so I am thirty eight now. So back then, like, there was no alternative. You didn't go to the internet and learn things. There was no like entrepreneurial bug for the most part, at least in my circle. So I graduate. I you know I go to state school. I do like a year and a half. I am pretty miserable. I am not really having a good time. I took a leave of absence. I'm pretty sure everyone I knew at the time said like he's dropped out of college. He gave up. I worked a job for a year and I, I wasn't super happy or fulfilled. I liked the people part of it, but I didn't like the work and I found you're going to laugh, but in the back of Rolling Stone magazine, I used to read Rolling Stone cover to cover because mm. you did back in the day, like there was no other way to do it. And I loved music and I loved the idea of being involved in the industry. And in the back of the magazine, there was this ad for this school in Florida called full Sail university which is as ridiculous a name as comes for a school. And it was started by like self-proclaimed by a bunch of hippies in the sixties when music was up and coming to give musicians and more specifically producers and artists, a place to go and anchor into some sort of a formal education. Now, when I went there, so 2000, it's like five ish, if you will, it was an actual college an accredited college and had been for the better part of about 15, 20 years at that point, maybe 20 years at that point. And, you know, they had built this incredible, incredible program Around entertainment business. And so I'm like, I'm in and I apply. And, you know, of course, magically, two weeks later, I get in. And then two weeks later, I'm in Florida looking at apartments. And two weeks after that, I quit my job and I moved to Florida for, you know, school. And I spent the next about a year, no, it was maybe about seven months in that program and realized, like, I hate this still. I'm not happy. I'm not fulfilled by it. And I went to the, I don't think they called it a guidance counselor, but like whoever that person was at the time. And they said to me, well, what are you inspired by? And I was like, it's music and it's art and it's design. And they were like, cool, we have this digital design degree. Have you thought about that? And I'm like, you know, no, what is it? And I go and take a look at the program and they sell the heck out of me. And I'm like, I'm in, I'm going to go change the world. And so I like, if any of my friends or peers hear this, they'll know me and they'd, they'd probably laugh if they did. They'd say like, Barrett is not an artist. I'm creative. <laughs> I can like make stuff that looks cool. But when my peers were creating these like beautiful traditional art pieces or incredible mixed you know media pieces, I was the guy that would present like when we would do these projects, they would always say like, and Barrett's going to be the guy that leads because I was really mm-hmm. good at spoken word. And I didn't know what that meant for myself at the time. So when I graduate, I'm graduating class speaker. My, my class nominates me and I'm like, you know, honored, let's do it. And I write this speech and I go and I deliver it. And afterwards, someone came up to me and they said, you know, that was exceptional. I'm like, you know, thank you. I'm trying to be humble, but I'm also like shaking from the adrenaline and super nervous. And I said, like, yeah, I just, you know, I, If there's one thing I took away from college, it was that I'm a damn good presenter or something kind of silly like that. And they said, yeah, man, your words are your art. And I remember being like, oh, I never thought about it that way. And I don't know, an hour later, whatever it was, I was talking to a buddy whose art was on display in the school like auditorium, like this big space. Everyone can see it. I said, I wish I could do what you do. I pointed the wall and he was like, no, man, you have something I could never have. I said, what's that? And he's like, your words, your words are your art. And I'm like, okay, I've heard it twice in the last hour. I got to use it's really powerful. I got to use this and it's carried me for the rest of my career. It really has been the cornerstone of of much of who I am.
0: Yeah. That story you shared about your guidance counselor. I'm not sure how frequently you share that story, but I've heard numerous times from my girlfriend, from other friends, how frequently they've heard that from their guidance counselors. And I'm like, either Uh there's some tactic that all guidance counselors are using to like uh, reverse, psych, like use reverse psychology to get students to get their shit together, or just well, they're just they're really bad guys. Yeah, they're just castlers.
1: terrible. Absolutely terrible. I still
0: <laughs> remember, like, I can see
1: their face when they delivered it. They were deadpan. There was no, okay. like, there was no, you know, manipulation or otherwise. And it's funny. I tell this story, we can talk about it later if you want, but I tell this story about how, like, I've built my career and how it took a long time to put together the kind of Lego pieces that make up who I am today. But I think a lot about that and a few other specific events throughout my timeline early on that really put this, this chip on my shoulder of like, well, let me prove you wrong. Like I'm, I'm going to go and be successful just because I don't want to be the statistic perhaps, or just, I don't, I don't want you to feel like you won or whatever. Maybe that's just like the ego or the, you know, the entitlement that we all carry when we're young. But I just, I really felt like I'll prove you wrong. You know, Mr. Mrs. Guidance counselor, like game on.
0: Yes. Story of my life. I I get that chip on his shoulder thing. Uh, What what are these Lego pieces you're referring to? (laughs) Yeah, I feel like I opened that door.
1: So um, my career has been interesting. I I did graduate from that school. I have a bachelor's of design, um, digital arts and design. And this is 2008. So like the economy implodes. There's really no jobs out there. And I came home to like no prospects when a lot of my peers were getting scooped up by like ea games because that was in orlando and you know they were hiring or blizzard um or i had friends that were like really good at 3d modeling and they went on to go and do some exceptional stuff i had friends that started at you know agencies whatever i really didn't know i was i was still a little bit young in terms of my maturity in terms i think specifically around what i wanted to do with my life i just knew i liked people i liked you know that uh, interaction so i went into restaurants because it was the right thing to do it was a good place to get a job I was a, they called me a hospitality manager. I was basically a host and I would book parties and I started to figure out that to book parties, I had to be out in the community. So like I would show up for work an hour early and I'd go to like fidelity and you know, um, uh, Merrill Lynch was a big financial services uh, area that I was in and a bunch of other like big firms. And I basically just go knock on the front you know desk and be like, Hey, like get any parties coming up. We'd love to host a party for you. And I started drum just up. Cold business knocking. And, yeah. Just at, like, it was basically cold was, calling. Yeah. And like, go wow. and try and build business. Um, I think about that as some of the first Lego pieces that I put on. You know that green mat that every Lego kit came with when we were kids? Yeah. Like you built your house or whatever on it. I think about the green mat as as graduating primary education. Whatever you do, like whether you got your bachelor's or your doctorate is irrelevant, but we all generally speaking have the same green mat. And then some people have a few like blue six by six bricks or yellow, like four by four bricks that are on that. And those are your specialties. Those are the folks that have their M, you know went on to get their MBA or have uh, have their like degrees so they can go be a dentist or whatever those different components are and i think the challenge is that most people that i know they tell their story is like i knew what my lego mat was and i knew the different colors that i would put on it i didn't mm. so when i look at my lego mat over time i was in restaurants i've been in uh b2c and b2b saas startups uh i've been you know i was out of company was acquired I, i've been at hubspot for the last 8 years i've had a variety of different lego bricks that i would put on my mat and it wasn't until about maybe five or six years ago that I looked at my my Lego mat in front of me and thought to myself, like, I don't have a story to tell. I don't have a tower of specific color, specific size that I can rely on. And when I had peers and friends that were standing in those towers and they had elevated their careers at such a high level, you know, they'd say things like, I'm happy. And I'd say, no, you're not. Like You don't have mm-hmm. depth and width and this sort of um, – Experience that comes with a variety of Lego bricks. Now, my experience is my own, and like I don't, you know, push on anybody else. But for me, the ability to go and look at that Lego mat and say, okay, like I've got yellows and blues and whites and greens and all these different colors and shapes and sizes, they're not well organized. They're kind of like in a pile. Let me reorganize them. And so I started to to better articulate and bring together the different pieces of the things that I've done to understand how I could culminate in who I am today. And in that, that thought track and in that time spent, I started to realize that I had this common thread and that was people. It was sales, sun element, it was partnerships. These different components started to show up. These like, um, well, the bricks, the bricks started to show themselves as being consistent colors. So I reorganized my mat. I built this sort of pyramid and I don't have a tower. I'm not an SVP at a big company right now, but what I do have is impact because I have dimension. I have depth across my experience that I can draw from in every type of interaction. So one of the bits of feedback that I get from folks quite often is, oh, that was relatable or, oh, that story helped me understand. And it's because I've spent so much of my own time working on understanding my own story and my own background to be able to draw it into, as I mentioned, the different components of, of the work that I do every day. There's my Lego map.
0: Yeah, I, I can relate to that a lot. I mean, I, when I graduated college, it was a little bit after the financial crisis, but we were still feeling some of the after effects. And a lot of my closest friends went on to grad school. They went to business school, they went to dentistry school, they got their master's in public policy. And here I was like working, I also worked at a restaurant, but like back office doing a marketing in in LA and I was getting paid minimum wage. And I got excited that they gave me a $3 raise per hour and I got free lunch and dinner because I worked there. I thought that it's, was great. I, I get
1: it. I, I, even when I was in restaurants, that was one of the things that I, you know, I, I'm getting fed every day, and I get to make some money, and I get to meet great people. And yeah, you know, and I went into restaurants the first time in '08. I left and went to a startup. I was there for a year, and then 2010 happened, and everyone got laid off again because we had the, you know, uh, housing crisis and everything else that came with that. Status of time. So I understand this idea of like anchoring in these moments where you get a little bit of fulfillment, a little bit of security and, and safety. It makes a difference.
0: Yeah. And it's it's a much different story than, say, if you were to ask someone whose, I guess, career story is like, I went to school, I graduated college, I went to med school, I was doing residency, and then I'm a doctor now. It's like, there's no disrespect to that. It's just, it's very linear. And I yeah. think for folks like us, it it wasn't linear by any means. Um, you mentioned this chip on his shoulder <laughs> and not wanting to be a statistic. What, what are you referring to there?
1: Yeah. I think for me, it's specifically grounds in, you know, I grew up in a family where we had a, res- a high respect for like experience and culture and music and art. And at the same time, my dad was you know the head of sales and the top sales rep. And he was in a profession where, yeah, you know, again, I'm 38 for reference sake for the listeners. Like this is the seventies and eighties where sales was almost a dirty word. Like you pictured, you know, like the the heavyset guy at like the car dealer with like the big tie and the oversized suit. And I remember thinking to myself for years, like I don't necessarily understand, you know what my dad does, but I know it makes him happy. And I know it allows us to live a safe and healthy and happy lifestyle. And as I got older, I started to realize that a lot of what he was doing was the best that he could to provide for my family. And so I started to, to take that baggage on, right. And sort of like put this weight on myself of like, well, I need to be a strong provider and a strong, you know, um, leader, I guess is the wrong term, but maybe like head of household, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, my family was by no means traditional in the sense of like, you know, mom was this and dad was that, but dad certainly had a sense of responsibility in that sense. And I think it probably started there. I'm sure sure I could probably go to a therapist tomorrow and have them better analyze (laughs) me and I have a better answer for you. But I think it started there. It also was the fact that it's what you described, similar stories in the sense that when all of my peers had graduated college, I still was one year behind because I took a year off. And then when I graduated, frankly, the job market was shit, so then it was that my peers, if they were in a secure job, were okay, and I was scrambling to figure out what I could do to make money. I was living at home I was i don't know twenty two or whatever at the time twenty three maybe and you know i I felt a sense of like um being behind is probably the right terminology like this this feeling of like well, they were doing better and I wanted to do more and I wanted to do better and so i've spent the last I mean, that was like, again, as I mentioned, maybe 2008, I graduated. And so it's, what are we, 2023 now? It's been a little while. Um, I've spent almost my entire career with that little bit of like a voice in the back of my head. I have a very loud internal voice that that says to me, you can do better. Like you will do better. Someone next to you is doing better. And so I'm very competitive in that sense. And so I think the chip lies in, you know, I don't have a traditional educational background. I don't have a traditional work story. And to what you just described, it's not linear for me. And, Up until recently, most of the folks that I talk to, when they hear that story, they're judgmental and I'm a human Mm. being. And so I'm a bit self-conscious of that. And it's, oh, how do I, how do I change the story and how do I better articulate? And what I realize now is a 38 year old, you know, husband and father, we have a a beautiful four-year-old, like I have a chance to change that. So the chip is still there, uh, but it's less ego and sense of like a needing to prove and more, I think a little bit specifically a desire to be the best version of myself. So that chip is, is like a little bit kind of manifested differently, if you will, into this, um, a little bit kinder, perhaps voice, maybe not as kind as it could be, but <laughs> a, a better voice in my head that talks a little bit more about being more present with my family, being more present as a dad, et cetera, And then still wanting to be successful in the way that I make money, you know, every day to provide that lifestyle.
0: Yeah. I, I can appreciate the the evolution of that inner voice to, to something maybe more kind and accepting rather than some days. Yeah. Some of them were uh, crude things you might say to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have those days <laughs> just, too, to I'll be clear. Yeah. We um, can leave
1: it at that. That's good.
0: Yeah. I can, I can really relate to the competition too. I remember one of my good friends since high school, she's one of those folks who went to medical school and I was like, real talk, how much money do you plan on make? Do you expect to make out of like out of school? She said, um, like 200 K minimum. I was like, I'm going to get there before you graduate. <laughs> Isn't that wild? It's and, wild, right? Yeah. And so like we, we chat every like month or so. And I'd be like, just got a promotion, just got a promotion, just got Here's a promotion. I'm at, just like, what are you yeah. at now? I'm like, yeah, I think I hit that before you you finished school actually. <laughs> yeah. But
1: I think that's, I mean, that's the thing that I had somebody the other day ask me, um, how did you get into partnerships? how did you get to where you are? And I love that question because, and we can talk about it later if it makes sense, but the point of me yeah. highlighting that is, I don't have an answer for that. Like I don't have a, I didn't like set out to be like, cool. I want to do this thing. Like a lot of my peers did. And yet at the same time, I found the right company at the right time. I had an incredible journey. You know, I've learned just leaps and bounds. I'm a different person than I was seven and a half years ago. I'm grateful to HubSpot for that. But in part, I also out earned my peers. I out succeeded in many ways, my peers. And it, it's funny because that voice is always there. Like, are you the CEO of whatever? And does it even really matter at that point? You know, I I don't think that'll be enough. But I think for some people, I'm learning this as maybe as a young adult, if you will, or a medium adult. I think there's there's people out there that you know they look at the generalists, the people like you and I that have a variety of backgrounds and experiences, and we bring it together to do something really actionable, meaningful, perhaps earning you know good capital. And they don't understand it, and that's ok. They don't have to understand yeah. it. It used to bother me that I was less understood. And now it's a bit of a badge of honor, I think. To be able to say, like, for me, that depth, that range, that ability set that I've developed over, you know, 10 plus years, 15 years almost now of working across a variety of different things has allowed me to earn well and live healthy and all those different components that are important. But it's also an ever evolving value set. So the fact that I've done a bunch of different things means I can reinvent myself tomorrow and go and, Mm -hmm. you know, quit my job and go open a restaurant, you know, quit my job and go start a company keep my job and start a side hustle doing whatever. Like, I think that's the reality of what I appreciate
0: most about where I'm at. Yeah, I love that. Well, you kind of teed me up. It's almost like you're looking at my notes, but this journey from uh, graduating with a degree in design to yeah. uh, hospitality or restaurants, tell us kind of that journey or maybe the, the highlights of how you got from there to like tech- and partnerships and sales, yeah. like, how did that pivot come to be?
1: It's so interesting. It was never conscious. I, I should, uh, let me let me back up. It is in part conscious, certainly. I don't want to make it sound like I just like close my eyes and. <laughs> I I started in the industry because I went to dinner in the city with my aunt to ask her for an intro to somebody who was leading a high end. Um, I won't use her name on the recording, but a, a high end development firm that built much of the seaport of Boston because he was looking for somebody to, to do something. I was like a project management role or whatever it was. Met with her, had a great conversation, had a great meal, went up to the manager when I was leaving and said, hey, this is a great experience and I really like these things and just did what Barrett does as a person. And she was like, do you want a job? Like on the spot. And I'm moving like, <laughs> what? And she's like, "What? you just like incredibly articulated the experience you had. I need someone to kind of help me run in front of house. Like, I don't know, you want a job? And I was like, yep. She was like, come back tomorrow. And I was like, I'll be here. And I got in restaurants. So that wasn't really on purpose in, in the sense that it wasn't massively intentional, but some of the best experiences I've had in interacting with people, why I can think very fast, why I'm very adaptive, all of that comes from my time in restaurants. So I did that for about two years, year and a half, two years, was burned out as one is in the industry, found a job in tech by literally applying on the internets of the world, had a bunch of interviews, and I still remember I had a motorcycle at the time and I was picking it up from the shop. And I got out of the car and I paid for the bike work, whatever it was, and I walked out to the motorcycle and I went to turn it on and my phone rang and it was a recruiter saying, we're gonna offer you the job. I had been through so many rounds, it was so brutal. And it was this like head of marketing experience and and what it was bo- like boiled down to is we were running regional marketing events and it was a little bit of a sales event, you know, kind of events job and I was so excited. And I just rocked that job for like 10 months. We traveled every week, I met so many people, I had such a great experience. And then I went in Christmas, the day before Christmas Eve, to what I thought was a promotion to the other team. They had this payments uh, solution as well. And they laid me off. And I was like, shit, Now, Like total like curveball. And they laid off half the company that day. No one saw it coming. And I remember being like, oh damn. Okay, well, like what do I do now? And so I ended up going over to the restaurant space again. And we're like, well, okay, that's a skill that I know, and there are people are hiring, and sure. And so I did that for like a year at the same restaurant. Now I'm a manager, I'm leading a team, you know, I'm closing the restaurant. I have all these responsibilities and the GM leaves and she goes over and opens up a new cool restaurant in South Boston, which was like kind of trendy at the time and up and coming. And she whispers to me, you want to come with me? And I'm like, yeah, she's like, going to be the AGM. And I'm like, yeah, of course I do. Let's go. <laughs> and it was the craziest year, a over year of my life. Um, The place uh, was called Lincoln Tavern. For those of you from the Boston area that are listening, you'll know it, everyone does. This was... At a time when South Boston was still a little bit like you might get beat up or stabbed or you might have like, you know, the best day of your life and drink mimosas on a patio kind of thing. It was a very mixed group of people and it was awesome. It was this really special time in the city. And we had this like just crazy good opportunity to go and be the catalyst, the bridge between old and new and a part of the city that was just gentrifying and starting to, to kind of evolve in that sense. and. I hired people, I trained people, you know, we had a 300 person capacity. We ran hundreds of thousands of dollars to this restaurant every night. We grew it. We helped the community. We gave back. I got to meet every sports star in Boston because one of our regulars used to manage the PR for the Red Sox, the Bruins, the and the Patriots and the Celtics. It was the craziest thing I've ever experienced. Yeah. It was so crazy. Cool. Um, And I remember just being like enamored by it, but just again, totally burned out. And so I had a buddy from one of the first restaurants I was at that was leaving a GM spot, a managing operator spot from a place in Cambridge. Do you want it? And I'm like, sure. One interview and the owner was like, you're hired. I should have used that as a warning. And, uh, and I ran his restaurant for a summer. And I remember the last night I was there saying to myself, this is madness. It was like three in the morning patrons wouldn't leave. I had to have security come in. It was a whole thing of me being like, this is not the lifestyle that I want. And I quit. I've never quit a job in my life, but I quit the next day. And And then I was like, well, what do I do with the rest of my life? Like, I'm just not happy with this this decision in terms of what I've been doing. And I went a week later to uh, to a patio in Boston to meet one of my regulars from the previous restaurant I used to manage because her new boyfriend wanted to meet me. And his name is Scott Bailey. I'll shout him out in the show. He is an incredible human being. He's one of my best friends to date right now. He's one of my groomsmen at my wedding. I remember Scott budding up next to me at the bar, the table, wherever we were at. And he's being like, hey, you're that restaurant guy, huh? And me being like, yeah, <laughs> whatever that meant. And he's like, cool. I know a guy who's got a startup that's selling a restaurants. Word is you a little bit of tech background. And I was like, yeah, I was a startup for like a year. And he's like, cool, you should meet him. And I was like, yeah, I should meet him. And he's like, you got a job right now. And I was like, Yeah, sure. I do. Totally. But, but I would leave it and he's like, all right, cool. And, uh, yeah. And I interviewed at this company like a week later and it was brutal, like 10 interviews and late night emails and early night phone call, early morning phone calls. And, and this is the abridged version to be clear, but it's important because it tells you kind of the full scope of it. I got this job and now I'm a sales rep at a startup that's selling to restaurants. So excited, like out of my mind, excited, really interesting transition and excuse me. And I end up going into the job and two months in, I get a phone call on a Sunday and the, the CEO is like, Hey man, we just let this, the VP of sales go. He's gone. And I'm like, well, okay, well I'm getting fired. Right. And he's like, um, we're going to keep you. Um, I want you to be in my office at seven 30 tomorrow morning. We're going to game plan it, but you've sold more in the last two months than this person had sold in the last two years. And I remember being like, wow. what really? And he's like, yep. You got to uh, get a shot here, kid. Let's see what you can do. And I came in the next morning and, and you asked me about the chip in my shoulder. This is why that, that context is important. I worked in restaurants where like, you're never good enough. I would worked in startups where you're always hustling. And now I'm in a place where they let go of the VP of sales. He came from Salesforce. He was like the guy. Oh. And me being like, who am I? I was a restaurant manager like two months ago who quit his job and like met a guy at a bar kind of thing. What do I have any you know chops for this? And um, yeah, CEO said to me, I remember this vividly. He said to me, you really have done a great job. We want to give you a shot. You've got two months to prove yourself again. Don't let me down. Show me what you can do. And I was like, "Man, okay, uh, I don't know what that means," but and he's like, "Sell, kid. Like, go sell." And I just kept going. And like, we, I sold really well. And then we pivoted the product, and I sold some more. We pivoted again. I had like early testers, and it was because I knew restaurants because we were selling to restaurants, and I knew tech because I briefly had a stint in tech, and I was a student of the industry. And so I did that for almost 18 months, 24 months, something like that, maybe a year and a half. And we sold it. And I remember being like enamored, like, this is the coolest thing I've ever experienced. But none of us got paid. It was a total like aqua hire. And so, like, all my startup equity got, you know, yanked. And I'm like, oh, damn, what, now didn't what? Get, like,
0: you didn't like, get any? Like, nothing.
1: Payout? I still what? to this day don't know what happened, actually. I should go back to that CEO and be like, what did you do? Um, but yeah, I got nothing. No one really got anything. And they sold the business. And I remember being disappointed, but also a bit lost and saying, well, what do I really want to do next? Like I'm, I'm at a reinvention point again. I thought we were going to go to you know, an exit acquisition, whatever. And then I would go and grow again. I had a buddy at HubSpot, a company I'd never heard of. And he was just adamant. He's like, it's, you got to come here. You're going to change the world. And I'm like, no, it's silly. There are 500 people there. Like I'm at 35 people right now. I don't want to go to like, no, 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 500. You you're going to come do it. This is, um, this is Matt Grace. You know, Matt Grace. Do you want me to meet? Matt? Oh yeah, I've definitely yeah. crossed paths. He was yeah. like a director of VP of engineering at the time. I forget. Um, so I met with um, our head of strategy, Brad Coffee. Totally sold me on the role, mm-hmm. and it was the partnership manager role. And you're going to build a book of business. You're going to grow your opportunity. You're going to help these companies grow better. And I was like, help, build, grow. I'm in. Like you said, the words. And uh, yeah, it was. <coughs> excuse me. It was a brutal interview process. Really intensive. Really like well thought out. And I still remember to this day. And I will use his name intentionally and then I'll stop my story. This is important though. Uh, Brian Thorne, if you're listening to this, my friend, I hope you're doing well. But Brian Thorne was the director of sales at HubSpot and he was just exceptional. He was the the kind of sales guy you'd expect at a 500 person startup. He was a driver, but he was compassionate. He was super intense, but had this like really soft spot for good people. Like just a great human being, but knew what it took to get the job done. I remember leaving my final interview, my final presentation. And I had no idea if I did good or bad. They like, you know, give me all this feedback and whatever else. We'll be in touch. And I walk out and he goes, hey, Barrett. And I said, yeah, he goes, walk with me. I'm like, okay. So I I walk out to the exit, to the elevator. And he goes, um, looks me dead in the eye and he goes, well, it's really simple, man. You're either an incredible bullshit artist or one of the best fucking salespeople I've met in a long time. So let's see what we can do. And I'm like, uh, okay. you know, did get the job. And he's like, no, 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 no. We'll tell you in a few days, but you probably get the job. And I'm like, let's go. All right, cool. And so all of these different events in my life, the restaurant stuff, the you can do it, but you can't, the like different kind of components make up that chip that I described to you. And so, you know, I get in the HubSpot and I spend almost, uh, actually, June will be eight years this year, the last, you know, really almost decade of my life building a variety of, th- I was our, I joined as a channel manager, building a book of business. I did 186% of my number in six months. That's when I was sitting across from you. Yeah. At the time, our VP of sales was like, hey, we don't have anybody training folks on how to sell partner. You're doing better than anyone else is. Like, Before you make money, come do this job. And I'm like, well, let's go. Okay, cool. And I went over and I was the head of sales training for partner for like almost two years and built a program and had a blast and scaled it globally and trained like 1,400 people. And it's just incredible experience. And then that same VP was like, cool, you did that, solve that problem. I have a book of business over here. I need you to manage some of our top partners. They want to work with you. You should say yes to them. Okay, cool. Let's do it again. Did that for, uh, gosh, it was about four years, four and a half years. Um, you know, love that experience. Then right before the pandemic, or actually kind of mid pandemic, I got a little bit burned out in the job and uh, had an opportunity to come lead a corporate sales team and did that for a year and just really enjoyed sales leadership. And then most recently, about a year ago, got tapped to um, check out an opportunity to come and lead go-to-market and be a part of the go-to-market story, work with an incredible team of people and help us build the future of HubSpot's ecosystem as we go up market. So really long story. I know for podcast sake, that's a lot to listen to. Thank you for tuning in this long. Um, hopefully it's good context that answer your question.
0: Yeah, a lot. And I think the thing I haven't asked you before is, when you were a channel sales rep, yeah, You were selling other agency owners on how to become a HubSpot partner. And from my understanding, and were you doing both the hunting and the farming? Like you were also coaching them on how to grow their business. And you had never run a marketing agency at that point. How did you How you do that? Yeah, I hadn't. So we, it's a really interesting role at the time. And,
1: and there's days that I think we should go back to it that way. There's days that I know it would never work. We built our ecosystem initially on the observation that some of our most successful customers were working with marketing agencies. And that's why they were retaining longer, they were using our product more deeply. And so the program, I'll save the long story, I actually have a one of my uh, episodes of my show, Pete Caputa, who started the the, um, the actual program, comes on and tells the story, so go check it out. But the point is, we start this program on sort of opportunistic observation, if you will. And the idea was that we would bring in people that had, I think to some extent, a little bit of business background, good sales acumen, bit of a, we used to call it the figure it out factor, which is like the hustle factor at HubSpot. And, you know, I I had run the restaurant job, so I knew at least at minimum how to balance PL and how to hire people and how to give feedback to that effect. Um, I had spent enough time around startups to understand what it meant to think about resourcing and whatnot. And so I think fundamentally I had enough context and then I had my Lego bricks, right? I could take my Lego bricks and I can reference them as I went. So acquisition for me was probably the easiest part initially because our strategy at the time was to talk to folks about becoming an inbound agency. And I had, when I was in the startup that was acquired, so right before HubSpot, we had uh, left our offices at one point and entered a shared space with a marketing agency. And I befriended the mm-hmm. owner of that agency. And so not only had I gone to school for yes. design, like I understood the digital kind of foundations of what these businesses were doing for work and had done the work so I could speak the language, but I had also balanced and managed you know restaurant life and all of the business of that. and oh by the way, I just shared a space with an agency. so it was sort of like trifecta of things. <sighs> I didn't come in and say change who you are and become an inbound agency. I said, keep doing what you're doing. it's fantastic, but you could build a scalable, repeatable revenue stream for your business to deliver higher ROI to your customers and make it easier to deliver value at, you know at scale basically. And I had something like a 95% open rate, this crazy return rate on my emails. I don't credit it to anything other than, frankly, ego coming in and being like, I got a chip on my shoulder. I gotta prove that I should be, you know, <laughs> here, this right? Shit. Like yeah. I'm either a great sales rep or I'm a great bullshit artist. I'm gonna prove I'm a sales rep. Like I'm gonna go and yeah. win. And I think all of that culminated in me looking at the playbook and saying, I can do better, which is the wrong attitude. If anyone's listening, like don't do that when you go to a company. But I will say, question. And that you know my questioning and my observations yielded a really cool outcome. And then figuring out how to grow those businesses, I just started to grow them when I moved over to the sales training role. When I moved back, now I had learned to acquire, learned to teach others how to work with our agency partners. And so when I became a sales rep that second time as uh, you know a premier book owner, that was a different game. Then I was like really on fire growing those partners.
0: I love that. I love the serendipity of how these random skills and aggregate come together and like set you up for success in this one role. It's like, that's my life. It seems like that happens more commonly, but we all think that it's rare. Um, It's fascinating.
1: Yeah. It's I'm learning more and more that like the, I think for some of us, maybe I should say it respectfully. There are people that it is, it doesn't happen every day. I feel like because I've taken a non-traditional approach to most things that I do, generally speaking, My career, my time in seat has always gone back to one of those Lego bricks, like, and I got to move it or I got to adjust it or someone I met along the way at one of those Lego bricks and how that played into the bigger Mm -hmm. picture too. So
0: it's multidimensional for sure. Yeah. So let's talk about partner programs. We, we, We finally got here. So partner is this nebulous word. I feel like it's one of the buzzwords maybe of this year as people realize that. They need to partner up with other companies to help themselves scale maybe as part of the go-to-market but maybe a good place to start is how do you define a partner and maybe that goes into like the various types of partner programs a company can have like in my mind it's probably wrong but i think of like affiliate partners and resellers and distributors or like integration partners but how how do you define is that the right way to think about it
1: i think those types are accurate there's more you know some folks would say there's there's infinite in some capacity When I think about the term partner, there's a common phrase I'm hearing more and more from my peers in the industry, and that's better together. And I think if I were to distill it down to two words, it's better together. Your company and that company should be better together. When I think about it from my own perspective, the thing that is probably most important in terms of the the reason you consider a partner or build a partnership, et cetera, it's this idea that, you know, what you do as an organization, B2B SaaS, manufacturing, irrelevant, whatever you do, there's likely an intersection between what you do and some other company and your customer. I think about like a triangle, kind of drawing a triangle for those of you listening. And what most organizations do is they try and go path of least resistance, which is direct line of sight. They direct sell. They go to the customer and they say, we can sell you this, whatever it is. And in my experience, and it's limited, I'll admit that openly, like I've only been officially in partnerships for the last eight years, but I, I have my own show. I talk to a lot of partner leaders. Most of the people that I talk to, actually I think all to date, would say that from a like, dimensionally perspective, uh, uh, dimensional perspective, Perspective. Oh my gosh, I can't talk. Um, the reality is that partner programs are built mostly out of, or historically were built, mostly out of the, the kind of opportunity. So like some sort of an observation that says, my customer gets X from me, but I know that I'm a part of a bigger equation, like whatever that is. And there are other vendors, other providers, other other solutions that make up that bigger equation. The companies that recognize that early on are the ones that typically ask what kinds of partnerships. So the ones that acknowledge in some regard that they are looking for that other um, piece of the pie, the other side of the triangle, right? So that's kind of like step or dimension one, if you will. The other side of the coin is the people that say like, I've already observed that my customers are either asking me for something that we don't provide or like you use some sort of a solution that you can see there's other vendors in. So like whether it's through login or otherwise, those folks are saying we should build a program. I think the third piece that's missing most often is that those both those folks are asking the wrong question, which is specifically what does my customer need? that I can't provide and how do I ensure they get that? And so partnerships for me is truly about better together, better together stories, better together. There's a variety of of versions of that statement, but it's the intersection of value, the kind of cross section of value between your organization, your customer, and some sort of a third um, pillar, if you will, or, or point of the triangle that also either bolsters your value, adds to your value. It's another piece of that equation that helps your customer you know, grow better, retain better, get value from your organization.
0: Yeah, it's almost, if I were to revisit how I asked you that question, it might even be premature to jump to what types of partners you should have. It should start with, well, where do we naturally see customers using us alongside some other company and then decide, hey, what type of partnership makes sense here? That's really interesting.
1: I get that question a lot. Like it's, it's probably one of the top, maybe two or three questions that come to me, like either through LinkedIn in mail or through a friend of a friend kind of saying, hey, I have a, someone wants to ask you something. Usually it's like, what kind of partners do we need? Even big orgs will say things like, what kind of partners do we need? It is the wrong question in my opinion. It is more important than ever to listen to your customer. And I think nine and a half, nine point eight 9.8 times out of 10, most organizations don't truly listen. We used to talk about when I was running training, we had this slide about active listening. We used to say, what is active listening? And it's always fun to hear what sales reps say to that question. But active listening is the act of listening, yes, but with the intent to understand. The goal of this is to truly listen to what your customer is saying. No preconceived notion, no assumption. Just, just listen to the actual words, no inference, and ask for clarity and dig in. And if you can do that effectively, you're going to uncover opportunities for partnership through other vendors, through resellers, whatever it is, versus the other end, which is what's in it for me. So if you make it about your customer, you put your customer at the center of everything you do and you say, that's my focus, then it's less about how do I sell more of my software? How do I retain my manufacturing equipment longer? It's actually about what does my customer need to be more successful? And if I'm not their holistic all-in-one, which you 90% you know percent are not, even the folks that think they are, they're usually not, then who else should I be working with that can complete that circle? And now we truly become sticky, happy, healthy providers to an even better customer experience. Yeah.
0: What are some examples of partnerships, maybe from your experience or from observations or people you've spoken to on your podcast, like partnerships that just happen to work really well that just naturally came out of speaking to customers?
1: I think it's usually three things. So the first is always additive. So somebody who adds more to your service or your um, solution or whatever it might be. I think the second is typically the gap fillers. So additive in terms of like, if you use this, you augment Uh, the second being the gap fillers, i.e. like you don't do this and we'll fill the gap. And then the third is the like kind of uh, probably the, the most um, common one, which would be like the, um, the solver, the provider, if you will. So somebody who like, migrates and implements and integrates and does the work. The worker bee is probably a good, a good expression to use there. And Mm -hmm. those folks are the ones that are typically where most leaders in particular sales and CS leaders lean in first because they can, they're, they're sexy. They're cool, right? They like increase your stickiness or they help you sell more. They're your lead source. They're not the dimension necessarily that, that truly adds value to your customer, but they might be like, they
0: might be a good kind of frontline offense if You think about it that way. So for the folks listening, and I know there's orgs like Partner Leader and Partner Hacker popping up now, so it sounds like a lot of folks are starting to jump on partnerships as a, let's call it a bandwagon, because I can't think of anything else right now, (laughs) but it seems like something that's quite popular. For folks who are saying, hey, we believe that partnerships are an important part of our go-to-market, how do you advise folks I won't say like build a program because that assumes they should, but how should they like start validating and like, how should they be thinking about the zero to one stage?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Talk to your customers is one of the first things that usually folks will say to me, how do I build a program? And I'll say, well, what do your customers need? And they're always like, no, but I want to know how I build the partner program. And I'm like, yeah, I get that. But what do your customers need that you're not providing right now? If you've defined what your customer need is, the program should build itself. If it's that they need better integrations with like a, I don't know, a direct mail tool because you're an email tool and your customers also do you know do direct mail. That's like a common one I used to hear. Cool. Like go partner with some direct mail companies. Or maybe you don't partner with them and maybe you build an integration, an app partner ecosystem, and you go that way instead. That is defined as what your customers need. Mm-hmm. Step one, listen to your customer. Step two, document what you're hearing and validate it by asking more customers. So most companies go straight to mm-hmm. you know a B2B direct. You know, to consumer sale in that sense, like they're they're going to do their direct sales motion initially. My advice is always test the market, put it out there, put it on LinkedIn. If you're building a company, like throw up on LinkedIn, hey, we're we're building this thing, and here's how we solve problems. Who also solves a similar problem? Who else should I go look at? Look at your peers. Mm. Listen to the the feedback that you're going to get. That's going to help you validate of the things that you're not thinking of. Which one you should go and focus on? Is it that you need? You know The gap filler is that you need the integration, the things that I talked about. I think those are the first steps toward understanding program dynamics. And then most folks usually ask me, what's the next incremental step from there? It's to go and try it. And actually, it's so interesting. I just had somebody the other day tell me they're at a 40 – I think they're a 45-person startup right now, all self-funded. The founders exited a big company before. They took a couple of years off. Now they've got all their own capital. It's like the cool spot to be in, right? This person came to me and they said, hey, we want to build a agency partner program. Like, could you give us some feedback? And I was like, sure, cool. Um, and they were like, all right, so um, how do we sell to them? And I was like, well, what do you do? And they did this like, whole big spiel. And I was like, okay, um, understand that you like have now given that background. Why do you want to sell to these partners? Like, well, we want them to sell for us. And I was like, cool, okay. Um, mm-hmm. What do your customers want from them? And they were like, well, they want to buy from them. I was like, do you know that? they were like, well, no. I was like, cool, all right, let's table that because you need to go have a conversation with your customers. But you asked me specifically, how do I sell to you know small to medium-sized agencies? Really simple. You go and you look at the directories, the partner kind of uh, lists, if you will, of the biggest software companies that have the types of businesses you want to work with. HubSpot, Marketo, Adobe, whatever it is, right? Typically it's like the um, B2B MarTech tools have agencies as their, their ecosystem. Cool, great. Go identify the top 10 in each ecosystem write them an in-mail, say I'm building a product, it helps companies like yours, and I would love your feedback. Here's a $15 Starbucks gift card. Have a coffee with me, have 30 minutes and feedback me. It's all I want from you. you jump on the call, introduce yourself, say I'm just going to have, you know, recorded. obviously, I want to record it, is that okay? Yes, it is. And you spend 20 of your 30 minutes, not a minute more, showing them the platform and asking pointed questions. You should have three or five questions you want to get from every one of these that you do. I believe this is the easiest way to do it. And they'll give you other feedback. And ideally what you're doing is you're, you're selling a little bit. Interesting. Would you use this then? Mm -hmm. I would. Okay, cool. Would you use this then? No, I wouldn't. Why wouldn't you? And you get all those clarifications, right? And at the end, this is the most important part. And this person said to me, I don't know if we could do that. And I'll tell you what they said in a minute. So at the end, We walked through this whole process and I said, now you've got your like five or 10 or 15 or 20 interviews. You've got all your feedback from the types of partners you want to work with. How would you use it? How would you use it to help your customer? How would your customer use it with you? All those one and two and three away stories. You have your sales process to find out. You have all the questions you need to ask a customer and a prospect, right? All the options for how you can engage a partner. You look at that that potential partner and you say, would you use it? And they're going to say, yeah, I already told you I'd use it. And you say, cool. It's yours for 12 months. Give it to them. And mm-hmm. the person who was asking me this question, uh, she said, I don't know if I can just give it away. And I said, you have to give it away because these partners are your earliest adopters. And what they're going to do is they're going to be your inside person. They're going to tell you what works, what doesn't, how to build the model, how to sell it. And what you do is you say, in order to use it for free, now you don't have to do this all on the same call, but my point is, and why I share this You want to work with these folks very, very closely. So they should be your co-marketing partners. They should be your co-selling, your co-servicing. They should do all the things you would expect a partner to do and allow you to document, to ask questions, to get testimonials, to do the marketing for you. They are your first reach. They are your market validation. And the thing that you're doing in return is giving it to them for free adding value to their customer. And then as time evolves, if you're building a good brand, you're continuing to elevate their opportunity as well. Refer some business, maybe do some co-marketing, especially early on when it doesn't matter as much. But what most importantly they're doing is they're validating not only product market fit and go-to market fit, but partner market fit, a phrase that I think we don't use enough. These are the mm-hmm. types of partners that work with my customers. My customers get value and they repeat, they're re they whatever it is. And this is obviously a SaaS example because that's where I come from but I could
0: see it working in manufacturing. i could see it working in a variety of other industries as well. Yeah. It echoes a lot of like product development or just launching a company, like get your first customers, interview them, see if it meets their needs. If they have any challenges, answer it, see if they'd want to use it, get their feedback. They're going to be your first champions and they're going to talk about the product to their peers. So it's, it's like, instead of, Viewing this as building a partner program, think about it as like this is a a new go-to market where we're going after a new audience. How do we validate it with them? Yep, it's, it just so happens that they might end up also like helping sell. It,
1: that's exactly, and maybe it's a co-service. Maybe they integrate. They, mm-hmm. um, I think about it like you know how a lot of software companies think about product market fit, and there's somebody much smarter than me that talks about how. Uh, They have this equation – it's Mark Roberge, the former CRO of HubSpot, brilliant guy. He's got an incredible capital firm now, Stage 2 Capital, and he has this concept of the science of scale. If you're listening to this, if you made it this far in the episode, go and Google the science of scale uh, with Stage 2 Capital. It is a brilliant operating system, but one of the things he talked about that always stood out to me is PET, his equation. P percent of people do E event over T time and what he observed was that a certain amount of customers, you know, in our case i think it was like 80% early on, 80% of our customers did three or more actions across three or more different parts of our platform every month. That was product market fit. We knew we had repeat customer actions that were good behavioral events, they would stick around and be happy. When he taught this lesson i remember being like that's a partner model too in a heartbeat, right? p hmm. percent of partners do E event over T time. The key thing is E event. You can do this in any regard, any vertical, any, anything. The event is the key thing and, and narrowing down specifically for your vertical or for your space. What the event is, is what actually anchors this in value. And for me, when I think about, you know, partner market fit specifically, the E event is delivers value to the customer, whatever that action is. Is that turning the tool on? Is that using the tool? Is that? You know, setting up the machines if you're manufacturing is that executing on the you know bionic arm because you do something with that. I mean, I, it's irrelevant. Whatever the event is, as long as you know that your customers are retained and getting value by that event, now you need to make sure that your partners are executing that event as well, and that value
0: flows downhill. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, as you're starting to validate the early stages of this partner program, like, how do you know it's working? What measure? What metrics do you measure? It sounds like there is a stage where you need to define like, well, what do we want our partners to be doing? And that is downstream of what kind of partners they are.
1: Yeah, I, it's definitely by the, it, well, it's w- what they are highly deliver value to your customer. I mean, it all goes back to what your customer need. And I think a lot of companies talk about specifically, I know they do, you know, my customer at the center my my customers, everything, that whole methodology of like customer first mm-hmm. doing it, exercising it, repeating it, being a student of it. That's the hardest part. And so your partner's, this guy, uh, Blake Williams, you should look him up. He's just a really smart guy. He talks a lot about partnerships. He was on my show forever ago. He's one of the earliest guests, but he, I'll never forget what he said. He looked me dead in the camera, right dead in the eye, and he said, uh, You don't own your customer's trust. I was like, What? You know, like that's such a profound thing. St- you don't own your customer's trust. Your partners own your customer's trust. You get to borrow that trust, add something to it, and deliver it back through your partner with more than they actually took from the the customer in the beginning. And I just remember being like, wow, you're so spot on, right? These partners, these organizations that are already working with your end customer, in particular early on, are doing something already that they see valuable. And if you can add to that, Mm -hmm. if you can augment that, then that's absolutely a win. And so when I think about measurement, it is customer happiness. It is, you know, amount of engagement. It's those things that you'd expect in a SaaS company, in a manufacturing otherwise. Whatever your core metrics for success already are, but it's additive. Perhaps it's multiplied. Some organizations look at partner as a two, three, five, 10 X multiple. Others say that it, you know, improves bottom line. It just depends on what those core elements are in terms of drive. And then to your point, the dimensionality of each of those different verticals, is it that their integration has your customers stick around longer? Is it that they sell more than your direct rep can? So they are a net new sales opportunity. All those variables are related to being a student of the data. And that's what I would anchor it in study your partners, look at what they're doing to impact your customer, and catalog that. Measure it however you can, and do that across enough of them, you'll come up with your conclusion for what your metric points are.
0: Yeah, you just, honestly, you just flipped an assumption I had on it, an assumption I didn't even know I had, which was that if, let's say, you're running a B2B software company that partners are additive to your company, which is now being challenged because you're saying, no, you're additive to your partner and what they're doing, because they're ultimately the ones that your customers trust. They're the ones who are uh, doing you a favor. Like you're not doing them a favor, which is a very interesting uh, flip of how to think about partnerships, especially building out partner programs.
1: It's less me-centric. It's more them. Yeah. They. How can I? I maybe I'm idealistic. Maybe I'm. I, I am who I am. I you know should be I should be clear about that. I believe that it's our opportunity as leaders in in business to use our platform to deliver value to others. Like call that intrinsic, call that whatever you want. When I think about the partner, all they are is a I mean, they should be, I should say, a layer of additional something sitting Mm -hmm. alongside you in that customer interaction. That could be transactional value, that could be retention, that could be, you know, product value. All of the value itself is in some ways irrelevant. What matters is that you are improving the customer experience. What matters is that this other organization, and in my opinion, they should benefit too. So this other organization can benefit from this relationship. If you're both benefiting, then you're winning.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating kind of zooming out and looking back and thinking about the many good calls HubSpot made, like investing so heavily into the partner program. Thanks, Pete Caputa. Um, Granted, they're looking at folks like Salesforce and learning from them as well. But some of these things were I'd say kind of early bets that we're starting to see more companies use Husband as a blueprint now. So it's, it's cool to hear this story and how, how you're a part of building all of that.
1: It's been a journey. It's been a, a lot of fun learning from my peers and watching how, you know, these things go down. I think, you know, the, the core values of a program like this are customer first, you know, and, and, and then being a student of what that means, being very intentional about listening to our customers and listening to our partners and taking feedback. And you know, you, you can't hear all of it and listen to all of it at the same time, if you know what I mean. You gotta be very intentional about what you action on, but look for common threads. Look for things that are coming up over and over again. Look for where your gaps are being filled by a partner to help a customer win. And ultimately at the end of the day, you really can't go wrong. That all comes back to, that active listening I said earlier, right? Active listening with the intent to understand. Yeah. If you're listening to the market, your peers, you know, your customers, certainly your partners, you're going to be better. You're going to be more effective. And usually, when I talk to B two B folks that are talking about specifically building a program or how do I get into partnerships, and I talk about listen to your customer, most of them go, oh, it was like this weird moment of like, yeah, I, I just I could just ask somebody. And I, um, you know, David, maybe this is just like me because I'm I was in sales for a long time, but when I listen to folks say things like, how do I, my response 90% of the time is go do, which is probably like a Gary Vee influence, if Mm -hmm. I'm being honest. Um, but like pick up the phone. Like I I always boggles my mind when folks will say, well, I don't really know what my partner wants. And I'm like, call them. I don't really know what they need. Call them. I I just, I'm trying to figure out if they, no, just shut up, call them, go do it right now. Like (laughs) go get on the phone with them because at the end of the day, like what's the worst that happens? They laugh at you. Okay. But you learn something. And that's hard. I don't want to be like I don't want to minimize it. That is a hard skill and a hard shell, if you will. You have to develop. But my advice to anyone is like if you have questions, go and ask. And everyone will take thirty minutes and you know ten dollar coffee card or whatever to help somebody else. These days, everyone, generally speaking, for the most part, uh, to be clear, there are some jerks out there. Um, but like, I think it's a good tactic in terms of like I don't want anything from you. I just want to you know buy you a coffee or two for you know thirty minutes. I want to get some feedback from you on my platform and. Shit, if you like it, like I'll just give it to you for free for a year and you can use it. And tell me else what I can improve on it. Most companies today, especially if you're early on, they want to get in early because they can have a chance to influence and benefit from that early opportunity as well.
0: I love it. Yeah. So big takeaway, if you're asking how to, just just go do. If you're asking how to, it's it's you're probably just overthinking it, right? There's a t shirt in
1: that. If you're asking how to, (laughs) just go do. I like that. That's the name of the episode right there. Probably
0: going to get sued by Nike or something? <laughs> <laughs> no, you just got
1: season to assist. Get him.
0: Get <laughs> all right. Well, I know we're coming up on time. So how about we go get through some of the closing questions and we'll wrap yeah, it up. Let's do it. All right. What is one opinion you have about business that you think people would disagree with? Oh, okay. Uh, that's a fun one. You know,
1: I think it's, um, uh, it is, it, we all got to just like chill out a little bit. It's not that serious. Like, <laughs> There are some people, I get it, that are like curing cancer and saving babies and changing the world. And those people should be taken very serious. The rest of us probably need to do like some box breathing or double breaths and like exhale a little longer than they should and get some of that carbon dioxide out and clear their minds. (laughs) I just, I feel like we're all very serious as a product of where the world is at. Maybe just like, don't be so serious tomorrow.
0: Yeah. Laugh laugh at ourselves. Just exist a little bit easier. Just be a little easier, a little easier very Buddhist of you. (laughs) Um, What is one impactful piece of advice you've been given? Uh, I had
1: this, I I actually tell this story. I bet I love this one. I have a GM, one of my first GMs when I was in restaurants and it it was like this crazy Saturday night and we're on like a two and a half hour wait and there's a concert next door. And I'm just like getting yelled at by every guest at the front door. I'm running the front of the house and, he comes like ripping around the corner and he's like in my face and he rib jabs me. Cause you could do that back in the day. You can't do that now, but he like pokes me in the ribs. I'm talking to somebody. I'm like, what? I think it's a server and it's him. And I'm like, what? And he gets like right in my ear and he's like, that table has been sitting open for 20 minutes. And I was like, okay. And I like kind of like wave at one of the bussers and I'm like, Hey man, just go grab that table. Just bust it real quick. We got You know? And he rib jabs me again. The GM does. And he's like, no, you go do it. And I was like, what? And I'm like, I got like 20 people in front of me. He's like, they can wait a minute. That table can't go fix it. And he ran off and started cleaning the table next to it. I run in and I'm doing it. I clean it up, whatever. And so later on that night when like the dust and, you know, crazy screams have settled and we've all survived this crazy busy night, he says to me, do you know why I did that? And I'm like, no, other than you being a jerk. And everyone's kind of around. So they laugh. And he's like, it's really simple, man. Do first. I was like, what? And he's like, don't tell somebody to do it. Go do it. Get it done. If you lead by doing, People will respect you. They will follow you. And you won't have to ask for it anymore. But if you lead by telling, then you're always going to have to tell somebody to do it. And I was like, whoa. And I I carry that forward for the rest of my life. I was like, I don't know. It was like 2008. It was like my first job. And I, I just
0: remember being blown away by it. That's amazing, and yeah. you also mentioned like he told you to bust it, but he also went and busted the, the table next right to right next me. to me. Yep,
1: that was yeah. the thing for me that I would remember being like, like he's wearing his like you know his suit, and we we're in a high end restaurant. Like he's got his suit on, I got my little vest on or whatever, and uh, I just remember being like, okay, like if he can roll it, on. and I still like to that. You know, that's carried throughout my entire career. Years later, when I was running the spot in South Boston, I'll never forget as a carry forward. Real quick here, but the um, we used to wear radios because the place was huge. It had three hundred people, and it was really loud. And I had an earbud, in and I get this radio call like emergency in the kitchen, Barrett, come quick. And I'm like, oh boy. So I bomb to the kitchen. I get in the room. I, I bust the doors, and the chefs laughing. and I'm like, you know, what would you do? And he's like, did we scare you? And I'm like, yes. You said emergency, and he's like, ha ha ha, I love radios. And the, the guy over at the dish service looks at me, just panic in his face. And the chef goes, his whatever you would call him, my partner in crime, his his buddy over here didn't show up to work today. And you can see like the dishes are stacking up, and it's a busy Saturday night again. And I'm like, okay. And he's like what are you going to do? And I radioed back to the host station and I said, you guys are on your own for the next two hours. I'm running dishes. And they were like, what? And I told this guy to get out of the way. And I rolled my sleeves up. I took off my jacket and I said, you're on sort. I'm on clean. Let's go. And I remember people were taking pictures. The servers are running by laughing. The bartenders, <laughs> whatever. Now, again, this is back in the day. So then the bartender comes back with a shot and he's like, here you go. And we're, you know, we're all having a good time and in the night. We're post-service. The restaurant's closed. We're all cleaning up. And I remember the AGM being there and being like, hey, man, why were you in the dish pit earlier? And me being like, well, who else was going to do it? And he's like, well, you could have had one of the servers do it. And I was like, could I? Like the job needed to get done. And so I did it. No questions asked. And I remember from that day forward, anytime I needed anything, there was always somebody trying to anticipate because we were teaching each other how to operate together. And because I was not above something because I was a manager, not a you know dishwasher – I remember thinking we're all in this together. It's a family attitude in restaurants, but most importantly, and I carry this forward in business, you know, we're all here together to make up the machine that delivers value to the customer. And we are all in these different components that certainly should work in concert. And sometimes when things get broken, you need to work over cross-functionally to get something done. I love it.
0: That's a a great story.
1: I'll never forget that one.
0: It was a funny night to say the least. We had fun. (laughs) Very memorable for everyone. It it imprinted on me. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, what is one book you'd recommend more people read? Um, Zen and the Art of
1: Motorcycle Maintenance. I don't know why. I just really enjoy that book. I read it a long time ago. Um, and then I, I usually read for fun. I've got a bunch of. If those of you that can see me, like I have this like massive bookshelf behind me. There's a bunch of stuff up there. There's a bunch of things in there that are really interesting. The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg was a good one too. I like that one. I had a great recommendation of that for years ago. But I think Zen and the Art stuck around with me for a long time. I love it. I have yet to pick that
0: one up, but I've heard Should it, do it probably at least a dozen times
1: now. Yeah, it's good. It's a good book. It's it's interesting. It makes you really think it's cerebral. I enjoyed it. Awesome. All right. Where can people find you on the internet? LinkedIn, man. That's, you know, it's funny. I asked the same question on my show and I always hoped that when this question was after me, I have like this really cool response. I don't have a cool response. Just go on to, um, go to LinkedIn, Barrett J King. I have a middle initial to make it easier to find me. There is one other Barrett. He's in New York. That is not me. Um, I am in Massachusetts and I have no hair and usually bold glasses in my picture. You can't miss me, but Barrett King currently at HubSpot. Um, I also have my own podcast called outcomes. You can certainly look me up on Spotify and Apple and I'm on YouTube as well. Um, it's about all things, partnerships, specifically interviewing
0: operators that have been there, done the work and have a story to tell about it. Awesome. We'll make sure to link to those in the show notes, Barrett. It was a pleasure to have you on a show. Thanks for making time been a blast, my friend. Really enjoyed the conversation. Great questions. Thanks for having me.